0: The number one financial destination, YahooFinance.com. Labour descended into civil war again as
1: Keir Starmer attempted and failed to show the initiative after the party's poor showing in the
2: local elections. Very often we've been talking to ourselves instead of to the country, and we've lost the trust of working people, particularly in places like Hartlepool.
1: Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. This week, we'll be discussing the infighting that has followed Labour's efforts to address its unpopularity in its traditional heartlands, as you heard from its leader Keir Starmer at the beginning. So, who is causing the ructions and where are they going to lead? Joining to discuss is Jim Picard, our chief political correspondent, and Robert Shrimsley, our chief UK political commentator. And later, we'll be looking at this year's Queen's speech that set out Boris Johnson's legislative agenda for the year ahead. Was it a bold vision for post-Brexit, post-pandemic Britain or an empty document with some notable admissions? Health editor Sarah Neville will be discussing along with Robert. But first, Jim and Robert, welcome back to the pod. Morning. I said so Monday is a big day and despite the fact there's this rising concern about the Indian coronavirus variant and an infection spike in Bolton and some parts of London, things are opening up quite a lot again. We've got indoor dining at pubs, restaurants, theatres, cinemas, museums, galleries. The opportunities are endless. So what are
3: you both planning to do with your newfound freedoms? Jim, what's on your agenda? So on Thursday evening, I'm going to a jazz and poetry evening organized by my cousin, who puts on these regular events. And then on Friday, I'm going out for beers with a different cousin.
1: That is a very FT way to spend your first day of easing out of lockdown. Robert, what about you?
2: Oh, I'm actually feeling rather inferior now. I mean, I'm looking forward to having a lunch indoors. I've been having lunches outdoors. and I got thoroughly soaked yesterday going out to lunch. So I'm looking forward to being dry, going over and seeing my family in their house. I'm afraid a bit more prosaic than Jim, but I'm looking forward to it nonetheless. I'm very much looking forward to indoor dining too, having been back in Westminster this week and
1: had several lunches with various contacts outside and various degrees of the cold and wet. So on Tuesday, Got my first dinner out in a warm restaurant since, I don't know, October, November. So that's something to look forward to. But let's move on to our main topic of the week. Following Labour's struggles in the local elections this year, Keir Starmer attempted to reshuffle his shadow cabinet, starting with Deputy Leader Angela Rayner, who was abruptly sacked as chair of the party. Yet it did not quite go to plan, and Starmer had to pull back for plans for a wider shake-up. Instead of emerging with a fresh line of spokespeople, Starmer's position appeared to be weaker than before while Rainer was emboldened. She told the BBC that the party's problems were about messaging, not people. Well, what I heard on the doorstep is, didn't you know, what Keir Starmer stood for. So that's what I think our challenge is, actually. It's not, you know, people briefing, saying we think Keir thinks this, we think Keir thinks that, but actually about, well, what are we doing? What are our policies? So Jim, let's begin what happened after last Friday and Saturday's results, that you had a sort of tale of two stories for Labour. On the one hand, the three key elections, which were the Hartlepool by-election, they got smashed in, the same in Tees Valley, and they also didn't win the West Midlands mayoralty. But Labour did make some gains in the West of England mayoralty, which it picked up, and in the Cambridgeshire mayoralty, which are very Laboury areas. So it's another example of the party stacking up votes where it already has them. But the narrative was all disrupted by what happened on Saturday evening when Keir Starmer decided he would remove Angela Rayner as party election chair. Why do you think he did that?
3: Yeah, it came at quite an inconvenient time set because you remember I just put some potatoes in the oven to make a big roast and then I got the message from you saying this was all kicking off. The timing was terrible from a kind of perspective of everything else that was going on. As you say, It had the terrible results the day before. They were starting to get good results coming through, some of them quite surprising, like the Cambridgeshire one. And then that all got overshadowed by this leaking out, basically on Twitter, of allies of Angela Rayner saying Keir Starmer's tried to sack her. And it took quite a long time for the Starmer team to put out their counter message, which was, no, 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 no. We're moving her sideways. We want to give her a more public-facing role because she's so good with people, brackets, working-class northern voters in particular seems to be the implication. And they tried to sort of put across this more positive message, but by then the damage was already done and the whole row overshadowed these more positive results and basically just made the party once again look like ferrets fighting in a sack.
1: So, Robert, when you looked at what happened there, was the problem that Keir Starmer decided to remove Angela Rayner in the first place, the deputy leader? She's elected by the party's membership and has her own separate mandate from Keir Starmer. But that role she had as chair of the party and election coordinator, you can see why he decided to do that, given the party's results. But in some ways, you can actually argue the greater problem for Stamm was that he decided to remove her and ended up having to U-turn. And she's now got, I think, four job titles,
2: a 24-word description of what she does within the party. Yeah, I think there were three failures in this process. The first sort of the failure of timing, you really didn't need to get into reshuffle talk the day after the elections. Okay, you're gonna change your team, but you let the dust settle, you give it a few days, you don't make it look like it's an immediate reaction to the result, like that night, because that looks like panic and weakness. So timing was of itself bad. The second failure was turning on Angela Rayner in the first place, because actually the deputy leader is there rather to provide cover with the party for Keir Starmer as he attempts to push forward reforms. If you think back to Tony Blair and John Prescott, he used John Prescott consistently to allow him to reassure party members when he was doing things that they might not like. So it was a mistake in that sense. And he clearly broached it badly with Angela Rayner because if he'd left the timing a bit longer and said, Look, Angela, I want you in a much more front-facing role. The key issues, is this, let's talk about it. After that's settled. She might not have been so angry, thought she was being scapegoated and started briefing against him. But then finally, after all that, to fail is the worst thing of all. I was talking to somebody in the Labour Party, said, you know, can you imagine previous leaders having got this far, backing down when they're confronted? So it just leaves him looking inept and weak at the same time. It was a terrible look for him.
1: Now, Jim, if we look at what actually did happen in the shadow cabinet, the most notable change was a new shadow chancellor. Annalise Dodds, who was put in by Keir Starmer last April, and is widely seen to have not made a huge amount of impact, shall we say. I think she's been a competent pair of hands as Shadow Chancellor, but generally in that role you want someone who's quite punchy, who can take the fight to the government. I think it was widely seen in Westminster that she had not done that. And so Keir Starmer brought in Rachel Reeves, who was the shadow cabinet office minister, one of the biggest economic brains within the Labour Party. But for something of a bet noir of the right, which I've never particularly understood, what did you make
3: of the appointment? So I think the first thing to say about Annalisa Dodds is that she had a baptism of fire, getting that job at the start of the pandemic. And she did make some good hits, you know, especially over things like the furlough, putting the pressure on Rishi Sunak to keep extending the furlough and making sure that people who were thrown out of work during the pandemic, had state support. So it's not a failure of a shallow chancellorship. I just think in terms of sort of public consciousness, she didn't really make a major mark at all. I think there have been surveys suggesting hardly anyone's actually heard of her. And I think the idea is that Rachel Reeves will bring a sharper edge, a tougher persona. And yes, she's a former Bank of England official, so incredibly smart on economic matters. I think the issue that Rachel Reeves is going to find is that they've already had the sort of changing stance under Dodds. So she did the annual speech back in February saying, from now on, Labour's going to be financially responsible and fiscally careful. And I don't think we'll see any sudden change from Rachel Rees in terms of becoming even more centrist. The big issue is it's all very well saying we're going to be more fiscally responsible than Corbyn and we're not going to have 80 billion of tax rises and public spending increases in the way that they had. In the 2019 manifesto, The big question is what is going to fill that gap? And there's going to be a huge amount of soul-searching and debating inside the Labour Party, you know, between Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves as to what the hell are they going to do? Because what they would have done pre-pandemic is they would have done the traditional centre-left or soft-left thing of basically taxing a bit more and spending a bit more than the Tories and probably borrowing quite a large amount for Green New Deal-type programme. But given the $407 of borrowing that took place during the pandemic, that's quite a difficult argument to make. And they seem to be a little bit in limbo and not quite sure where to go on this front, which then makes it a lot harder for them to have a political narrative.
1: Indeed, and I think this is the fundamental problem for both Keir Starmer and his shadow cabinet, Robert, is that when you looked at those local elections, obviously it's been a very difficult year with the pandemic. In some ways, politics has been entirely frozen for the past 12 months. But there was no positive reason put forward to vote for Labour. And I think this is what I heard in Hartlepool, Tees Valley and the West Midlands, that the assumption that all those first-time Tory voters from 2019 would just go back, I think that's a very bad assumption for the party to make. And what Labour has to work on is some kind of positive narrative to bring those people back. And I'm not saying you can just magic this out of thin air, but there was really nothing at all that Labour put forward. And it feels like that's where Keir Starmer should be
2: focusing his efforts on and less about who's saying what. Yes, the party has to develop a cogent narrative, a story to tell voters about why life would be better under Labour. And you don't have any real sense of that other than a general dislike of Boris Johnson. It is just worth adding the caveat that the vaccine did change everything and incumbents won almost everywhere. There were exceptions, but mostly the incumbents did well. And that if you think back to the polls in December and January, you know, Labour was actually slightly ahead when people were beginning to feel the government was mishandling the pandemic, but it's with the vaccine rollout that changed everything. So this was not ever going to be easy elections for Labour in the first place. But what I think they have highlighted, as you said, is you don't have that sense of forward direction. You know, he's done a few things. He's shown that Jeremy Corbyn is no longer in charge. But apart from that, we don't have that sense of forward momentum of policy thinking, strategic thinking. And it's true that people aren't looking to opposition until they're fed up with the government. But you have to be ready when they are. And you don't have a sense of what the story of Labour Britain would
3: be like. I think it's also about tone as well, isn't it? If you think about relatively successful politicians like Paddy Ashdown or Tony Blair, or indeed Boris Johnson, they have a sort of sense of energy, of purpose. And it's sort of conveyed in your body language. and It's conveyed in the way you speak and the way you deal with people. And I just have the sense at the moment that the Labour front bench are very earnest, but they're a bit introspective. And they're apologising the whole time. They're apologising for Corbynism. They just seem so kind of needy. And a lot of what they talk about is about internal labour politics. And we've suppressed the anti-Semites and we've got rid of the Corbynistas. And they're going on about internal labour stuff when the average voter wants to know, can we get some homes built for my kids? Can we keep rail fares down? Can we get jobs, jobs, jobs? And I think that is where they are lacking at the moment.
2: I think one point is it does remind me of a couple of periods, both the Conservatives shortly after Blair's victory and the Labour Party after Thatcher's victory, where they find it hard to understand why people are voting for Boris Johnson and the Conservatives. They don't get it. And they think, therefore, it's all a con that's been pulled on the voters and that people just need to come to their senses. And until they can grasp why... Boris Johnson is appealing to voters and why he's winning, they're not going to be able to come up with a creative and interesting way of responding to it. But at the moment, they just feel, as you say, rather sullen.
1: But I think what you do obviously see now, which always tends to happen in Labour, is that when you see these kind of moves, it goes back into factional debate. And that's very much what's happened over the past weeks. Let's begin with the Labour right. We've seen that Tony Blair wrote a big essay in the New Statesman putting forward the arguments about the cultural disconnect between Labour and its traditional working class voters, which I think is really important. And it's something that I've picked up a lot on my research travels, that this could in some ways be the biggest problem for Labour if it can surmount the leadership and personal issue. But then you've also had as well this idea that it's a matter of circumstance. And Peter Mandelson, who was former deputy prime minister and a big figure in the new Labour era, had this to say to the BBC. I mean, actually, the
2: reasons for the defeat, I would say they were two Cs, COVID and Corbyn, Uh, with a bit of Brexit, previous Brexit party voters backing the man, uh, Boris Johnson, uh, who delivered them Brexit, and also promises of a large dollop of Tory government money thrown in for good measure. And all this as a whole turned out to be too heady a cocktail for Labour's
1: campaign to take on. And Jim, Peter Mandelson also wrote an op-ed in the FT this week, and he's been urging Keir Starmer to take on the left. And this is obviously something that Tony Blair did during his leadership and also Neil Kinnock did in the 1980s when Peter Mandelson was director of communications for the party. Do you think that's something that Starmer has to do and is going to do if he wants to try and get Labour in a position to have a punt at winning the next election?
3: I see this one a bit differently. I think going through the kind of old tropes of taking on the trade unions, which is obviously what Blair did 20 or 30 years ago, that's one thing you could do. But I think at a time when a lot of jobs have more uncertainty than ever before, where we have sort of zero hours contracts, I don't know whether sort of undermining unions is actually something that would be that popular with the public. It's not like 1979, where the trade unions had a stranglehold over society, and there were strikes every other day. I think the interesting thing that Tony Blair made in his intervention in the New Statesman, I thought there was a lot of kind of waffle about technology, which I think is not that interesting from Blair. But where he was quite interesting is the whole cultural issue and how if Labour just unthinkingly embraces the kind of perspective that if people say anything not politically correct, then they should basically be cancelled. I think he's onto something with that because whatever the kind of moral motivation of people when they do that, it is sort of repellent to a lot of people over a certain age, the kind of vehemence with which this stuff happens on social media or wherever. And he's just trying to warm the left of the traps there, which I think is something that Keir Starmer is aware of. But I think Keir Starmer also feels a bit torn between wanting to be on the culturally left wing of his party, but also appealing to traditional small-c conservative working-class voters. And Keir seems a little bit lost in the middle of that debate. What do you think about this, Robert? Because obviously the Labour left have now given
1: the opposite view of that. You've seen Jeremy Corbyn, gave an interview this week where he was very critical of Starmer and said that the main issue has been ditching his manifesto and the line that we hear often from the left, that the individual policies were very popular, and just that they weren't sold in a good enough fashion. And in your column this week, you've argued that, you know, you can look at the cultural stuff, you can look at the message, but fundamentally, it's about leadership. Do you think Starmer has it in him to show that kind of leadership like Blair?
2: It's possibly not surprising that Jeremy Corbyn and Tony Blair intervened with statements that essentially said that their way of doing things was right. I think the truth is there are three issues facing the Labour Party in terms of attempting to get back to power. And let's be honest, I mean, it's a very, very difficult call anyway for them to win the next election. And voters don't want to be wrong, so they're not looking to switch. They hope that they made the right call. But there are three issues. The first is a vision of hope economically. The second is a sense that the Labour Party shares their values. And the third is a leader who looks the business. We've talked about the first two, and Jim mentioned what Blair said on cultural values. And I think Blair had a great phrase in his article. He said that Labour Party should say it was intolerant of intolerance which is a sort of classic Blairism, a bit like tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. First you show you're cracking down on the intolerant woke warriors, and then you can be more progressive. So it's a classic way of doing things, but Starmer has ducked the fight. And that comes to the key point that actually Starmer can see where the Tory traps are for himself. He can see what Labour doesn't want to be doing, but he doesn't seem to want to step up and fight for the things he does believe in. It's not so much fight the unions or fight any particular caucus in his party, but show this is what he stands for. This is my core beliefs. And I think we forget that Keir Starmer is really quite a new politician. He's relatively inexperienced. He's not been in parliament that long. And he hasn't been steeled in a fight for what he believes in. When Tony Blair became leader, the Labour Party was already in quite a good position by the time he won the leadership. But he, along with Neil Kinnock and Gordon Brown and Peter Mandelson, they'd spent 10 years fighting to get the Labour Party back to where they thought it should be, which meant they had forged very clearly in their own heads their set of beliefs, what they wanted to fight for. They instinctively knew where they were on all issues and that made them more potent politicians. And I think what people sense with Keir Starmer is they don't instinctively know where he is and they're not sure he instinctively knows where he is. And finally,
1: Jim, is any of this going to lead towards some kind of leadership challenge? It's obviously, people are agitating for that on the left and the right of the Labour Party. And I think John McDonnell, who is Shadow Chancellor under Jeremy Corbyn, this week said that basically you've got to give him a bit more time and see what happens. And we've got this upcoming by-election and battle in Spain, which is, Says shares some characteristics of the Red Wall, but it's also had a Tory MP from 1983 to 1997. So it's more of a traditional marginal seat for the party. But you'd have to feel that if Labour lost that, then Keir Starmer would face some kind of challenge. You know, do you think that threat's real, or is it people just agitating on social media?
3: That was my intel when all of this stuff was kicking off over the weekend, was that the left would basically wait to see if Keir Starmer started attacking in a direction favourable to them, i.e. more towards the left. And they would watch out for the result from Batley and Spen. And then if that went badly, and if he was you know, heading in a more Blairish direction than a Corbyn's direction, then they would strike. But I think it's one of those things where they only have one shot at it, really. And if they have a go and they don't even get the 40 or so MPs you need to prompt the leadership race, then they will look really feeble. So they are aware of their limitations and how difficult it could be. They would need to reach out further into the party to topple Keir Starman. They would need people who are not from that wing in order to get rid of him. And I think for now, the feeling among most MPs is they're sort of exhausted from the, the civil war that happened under Corbyn, and they would rather just give Keir a chance. But are they frustrated with him? Are they unhappy with how things are going? Of course, there's there's, no, there's nothing like electoral failure to create orphans in terms of ownership.
1: Indeed. And I think we should always remember as well that part of the reason Keir Starmer got to the leadership so easily was the fact that he said he was going to keep Jeremy Corbyn's policy platform, but present a more electable face to it. And I think as he starts to move on policy and starts to jettison some of those more left wing policies, that will be another area of danger for him. But Jim and Robert, thank you very much. The Queen's speech is one of those moments where the pomp and circumstance of the British state is on full show. The event was scaled down, however, due to the coronavirus pandemic, but some also believe the programme itself is not what should have been, with some notable omissions. Boris Johnson hopes the next year will be the moment his government can move on from coronavirus. The Queen, addressing the House of Lords, said that the upcoming legislative programme will be focused on the Prime Minister's agenda to tackle regional inequality.
4: My government will level up opportunities across all parts of the United Kingdom, supporting jobs, businesses and economic growth, and addressing the impact of the pandemic on public services.
1: So Robert Shrimsley, there's been kind of two very clear thoughts on this Queen's Speech. Some people saying, well, there's actually nothing in it. Where are the bold ideas? Where's the big legislative plans? And then the other view, which I tend to think is the one that I have, is that there's actually quite a lot of stuff in there. There's a lot of legislation to pass and it's going to have quite a big impact on the country.
2: Yeah, I very much agree. I mean, I think actually the country would like a bit less of bold new shocks at the moment. We've had enough for a while. I think this is very much the Queen's speech you would have expected Boris Johnson's government to deliver with a couple of caveats. But, you know, it's very much looking at some of the policies that flowed from Brexit, the levelling up agenda. You have the Freeports policy, which is being legislated for. You have the skills agenda that's coming through. Some of the changing of UK business laws. So a lot of those things were as expected. There's some contentious stuff around democracy, restricting voting rights, judicial review. But I think given the issue of the pandemic, it's got a lot of clearing up to do with the aftershocks of the pandemic, huge backlogs in the NHS, problems in schools, backlogs in the criminal courts. So I think they've probably crammed as much in as they could. There are a couple of notable exceptions. One is a long awaited employment rights bill. And the other, of course, the biggest gap is the long awaited promise to do something on social care. Well, yes, Sarah Neville, it's great to have you back on the
1: podcast. This was the big thing, because if you remember, just after Boris Johnson was first elected prime minister, he stood outside Downing Street and said, once and for all, we're going to deal with social care. And you've been following and writing about this for probably far too long now. And the thing about this debate is we kind of know what the solution is going to be. It's just going to take quite a lot of political capital and some very tough decisions to decide. And clearly, Boris Johnson felt that he's not quite at the point yet where he's ready to make Make those calls. Do you think he ever will be?
4: Well, I think the sticking point, as it has been for almost 25 years, as you rightly say, Seb, I've been writing about this for far too long, is that it does involve a huge expansion in the envelope of the state. And quite clearly, Treasury administrations of all different stripes have been very reluctant to agree to that. And I think it's been made even more complicated by Boris Johnson's firm manifesto pledge in 2019 that nobody would have to sell their house to pay for care. And of course, the Treasury hates that. It hates taking people's biggest asset off the table. So it involves a number of complicated calculations about, for instance, on the means testing threshold, do you allow people to keep £100,000 of their assets excluding housing wealth? Or do you put housing wealth into that? Well, if you don't put housing wealth into that, it becomes an extraordinarily generous promise. And these are the debates that are going on, I understand, with increasing intensity between Number 10 and the Treasury. Because if a plan is to be in place by the next general election, Really, the spending round that we're expecting in the autumn is the very latest that agreement can be reached on the budget for this. And do you
1: think, Robert, that eventually the Tories will do something on this? Because obviously, you know, the Not review, which was when Andrew Not, the economist and statistician, looked at various solutions for this. It's been sitting there for sort of a decade. Theresa May had a punt at trying to fix it in 2017 and, of course, got trapped into what was called the dementia tax in her manifesto. And it is going to be difficult, I think, for any government to do this, but particularly a conservative government whose voting base tends to go towards the older end of the spectrum. But Boris Johnson
2: made a pretty clear commitment there I don't think they can dodge this any longer. It's a major issue for people. And as their voters get older and they feel more and more concerned about dementia and the sudden lottery of life as to whether you have to sell your house or whether you can pass it on to your children, it is a problem that has got to be tackled. And I think they're going to have to bite the bullet on a couple of key points, one of which is whether you simply treat care for long-term illnesses like dementia as being part of the general NHS offering and raise more money to pay for it, or whether you return to the deal not principle of some kind of insurance with a cap on how much of your home can be taken away unless you take out the insurance. But the choices are now fairly clear. They just have to make one of them.
1: Now, Sarah, let's have a look at some of the other things that were in the Queen's speech. That It solidified a lot of the commitments the Johnson government has made, for example, on environmental targets for hitting net zero carbon emissions. They were in there on house building. That was in there too about trying to, you know, reform the planning system and deal with some of the structural issues in the London Southeast property market. And again, there is a difficult political balance here because a lot of this stuff they want to do to help the new Conservative voters in the north of England, the Midlands, who are going to benefit from them. But it is going to cause a bit of friction with the traditional Tory base there. And I guess the Prime Minister feels that he's got enough of a majority, enough standing in the country. You know, Another poll having the Tories 15 points ahead of Labour today when it came out sure that he's probably got the room to do it.
4: What struck me was that the talk was of levelling up opportunities, not outcomes. Well, that's an easier thing to promise, isn't it? But what was perhaps also not there was a really fully worked up vision of what levelling up would mean. I mean, we've got this white paper that's coming out, I think, later this year, which is meant to flesh that out. So we'll see how that can square the circle between benefiting people in the north but not leaving people in the south, feeling as if they're very much sort of out of this project, particularly you mentioned on the planning rules the idea of local planning authorities having less power to block developments on Greenbelt in the south. Well, that's just the sort of thing that obviously gets traditional shire Tories deeply upset.
1: And Robert, there was a lot of stuff in it about reshaping past the British state. So you've obviously got this bill about free speech at universities and the idea that there's cancel culture. That means that right wing speakers are getting booted out of events. You've also got looking at reforming judicial review, which followed the um, Supreme Court's decision to cancel Boris Johnson's prorogation of parliament in the autumn of 2019 that made a lot of toys very angry about the role of judicial review and then it's also introducing voter id which is one i'm a bit split on actually because on the one hand i think it's incredibly odd that you can just rock up to a polling station i could say i'm robert shrimsley and i'm going to vote Lawrence fox for london mayor for example but on the other hand when you look at the principle i told you
2: never to mention that said
1: <laughs> it's going to disenfranchise a very particular part of the country
2: yeah, I think, you know, each of these measures in their own way, you can see the argument that's being made for them. But as a package, it does bother some people. So attempting to curb some of the overuse of judicial review something that both the main parties do actually agree that people are using judicial review too much to frustrate the will of elected organisations, be they governments or councils. And the government feels particularly strongly about immigration appeals, as we know. It's interesting, they commissioned a review into how to change judicial review by Lord Folkes, that review came back. So even though he was the man they appointed, it came back and didn't go as far as they wanted. So they've now decided to legislate to stop certain areas being subject to judicial review, which indicates that they've had a pretty clear idea of what they wanted to do in the first place. The freedom of speech legislation on campus, again, something that feels like a perfectly sensible idea. I do wonder if it's going to come back and bite the government. It's a very loosely thought through piece of legislation. And then the voting reform, again, interesting because a lot of countries do require ID. In fact, many democracies, Canada, France, Germany, a lot of these countries require some proof of ID when you vote. It's not an inherently outrageous thing. The concern that opponents have is that the people the least likely to have ID or get ID are those who are perhaps the poorest, ethnic minorities, some people who might have been least likely to vote conservative. So there is this concern of voter suppression in it. So I think a lot of it, again, will come down to the implementation, how easy they make it for people to get some piece of ID that entitles them to vote. And finally, Sarah, you know,
1: some people have claimed that this is quite a sinister thing, in fact, and it's a way of trying to restrict people from democracy. But on the other hand, you know, every political party that comes in does things to entrench their power. You know, another example of this, of course, is the Fixed-Term Parliament Act, which was one of the reasons we were in the Brexit deadlock of 2019. Do you have a particular issue with how
4: all this stuff is done? I think on the voting ID, my question would be, why is legislative time being spent on something which appears to be addressing a problem that doesn't really exist? Both, you know, in the UK, just as in the US, there is remarkably little evidence that voter fraud actually happens. But I think perhaps it's got this sort of slightly uncomfortable dog whistle element to it. You know, who is this message aimed at? That people are not going to be able to vote unless they can produce a form of ID that perhaps poorer people are less likely to have. I mean, on the Fixed Term Parliament Act, it's fascinating what a very short time that unusual experiment, something that we've never had before in the UK, it's remarkable what a short time it's lasted. All politicians want to retain this power to read the political weather, to seize the opportunity. So I don't think it's in any way a surprise that Boris Johnson wants to take back this power.
2: If you're looking at ways the Tories intend to tip at the table anyway towards themselves at a next election, the one thing we haven't mentioned is the boundary review, which is coming and is very likely to tilt in the Conservative Party's favour. And I'm told it couldn't possibly be enacted much before... July 2023. So if I was looking at the runes, I would be looking at the Boundary Commission. I'd be looking at an autumn election. Indeed. And I'm actually going to say now that this may
1: be proved wrong in the future. I still think the next election is going to be 2024 because I think Boris Johnson will want to be as far away from the pandemic as absolutely possible and also as much time to deliver levelling up as possible because he wants to get as much infrastructure projects going as people can see and then get a nice little tax cut in. But there's a lot of politics to happen before then. Robert, Sarah, thank you very much for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, then we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels, Apple, Spotify, Google, and your smart speaker to receive episodes as soon as they're released. You can also leave us a nice comment or some positive ratings. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Josh DeLemaire. The sound engineer was Breen Turner. Until next time, thanks for listening.
0: When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit Yahoo Finance.com, the number one financial destination, Yahoo Finance.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers.